HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. I'm Michael Ameco from Food Talk. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Sarah Simmons of City Grit and Birds and Bubbles here in New York. And I have to point out something that I love that you just did. You brought in a quart container with a, a straw in the, in the cover. Amazing. This is kitchen my move. new water bottle. Yeah. Because I've lost so many of them that I was just like, I'm not buying another one. And every night I walk out of the restaurant with my quart container sometimes i actually take the straw out wash it at home and bring it back because i'm that anal about recycling um yeah yeah see when my wife's not home i usually drink out of a quart container and then i put it in the fridge and no 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 i just made some tea for today but i'm drinking out of there rather than you know our, our nice cups right. all the time but you know it, it's funny because you know you're very well known in this city now as as a chef and restaurateur but Really, you got your start um, through food and wine, mm-hmm. uh, th- this competition looking for America's greatest home cook. Yes. And, you know, that's not a home cook move. That, that is, you know, that is a kitchen move. Right. So home cook, what home did it start in? What were you cooking? I know you're a Carolina girl. Mm-hmm. And how the heck did you find yourself in, in between two restaurants and so many other culinary worlds? Well, I've been cooking since I was six years old. My... Mom owned a catering business for a couple of years, and so I would go and visit her. And you know, she the hours it was no joke to me, and there was no mystery when I started cooking professionally about the dedication it takes and the amount of time 
you spend working um, because at a young age I would get off the bus sometimes saying I was going to my cousin's house and I guess this is in a small town where they didn't really check and you didn't need a note and they knew your mom and they knew your cousin and I would get off and roll into my mom's catering kitchen and we she made these things called hot olive puffs which were like at everybody's thing in the 70s and it was an olive rolled in a cheese pastry and baked and I probably have rolled a million of those <laughs> little guys because she would just put me in the corner and I would roll the little balls. Yeah. So that's not really cooking. It's more like breaking child labor laws. But um, no, not when it's familiar. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. Not when not, there's and you're not really getting paid. Yeah. <laughs> but then when she wasn't home, we had a nanny and that nanny taught me, you know, how to, to cook perfect bacon in the oven. She taught me how to make a hoe cake and cornbread and. Then as I got a little older, not old enough to actually use the kitchen by myself and be cooking over an open flame, I would get up on Saturday mornings. I've always been an early riser. And I would actually make myself breakfast. I would pan sear the toast and cut it. I would get deli meat out of the container from our lunches and like sear it on both sides and like fold it over and plate my food, sit there, eat it all. I couldn't even, I had to push a stool up to the to the like pantry to get bread and then to the stove and I would clean it all up and then act like nothing had happened because I didn't want to get in trouble. No, not knowing that my parents could actually smell things going on, but they were just like, let her do it. Yeah. We have smoke alarms. So was that young you trying not to follow in your mother's footsteps? No, it just like, I've been a fat kid my whole life. I think about food all of the time. That has not changed from when I was six years old until just this 10 minutes ago. I mean, I'm still thinking about it. I'm looking at the salad just thinking, oh. I mean, I've never had a worse segue, but, you know, talking about a culture that's obsessed with food and then pretty rail thin other than the sumos is Japan. Right. I mean, so, and you're also, you're tall. I am. So you, you certainly must have stuck out when you went to college in Japan. I did. I was in this tiny town called Hakodate, which is the port city on the northern island of Hokkaido. And I would sign autographs. And it was because I was this super tall, redhead American. And the kids would just, I would pass by and they would just look at me and their mouths would drop open because they never, some of them had never seen an American, but certainly one that's you know 5'9 and with long red hair. But my running joke over there, because they are like Italians or Jewish mothers, they just want to feed you, feed you, feed you, feed you. And they have this whole thing about waste, so they don't want to waste anything. So they would ask me if I wanted a peach because someone had brought a case of peaches and left them on the door stoop you know, on a Sunday. And that one peach, my Okasan would turn her back and peel and slice like six peaches and put them in a bowl. And my go-to line was, I did not move here to become a sumo wrestler. <laughs> I moved here to learn Japanese. Yeah. And what, what is that called? Mono, the, the, the idea behind not wasting anything. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what the correct Japanese term is. Um, but it is something that my mom thinks that either I in a former life grew up in the depression or I just have my grandmother, part of my grandmother in me, or it was living in Japan and that whole idea of waste is just foreign to them. Yeah. But I try not to waste anything. You know, still. and then working with Fortune 100 companies, mm-hmm. um, globe trotting around the world, eating at fantastic restaurants at the opposite end of the spectrum, mm-hmm. you know, that that's, you know, 
whatever the reverse of waste is. That's just luxury and, right. and you know, excess. Um, what were you doing at that time in your life? What kind of work were you focusing on? I was mostly doing business strategy. I really lucked into this role as an an expert in online retail. And it happened, I did it, it was luck, but I did it on purpose because after the first dot-com bubble, when all the people that had these like inflated advertising jobs where people are just pouring money into things for eyeballs, when they started losing their jobs, I was like, shit, I need a job that's tied to a revenue number. So I'm going to become an online retail expert. Well, even if you were a retail expert, then you definitely had more experience than me, but you didn't have online retail expertise. So I just read and learned and would meet with technology providers and meet with the people that develop these systems to learn the theory behind it and absorbed as much as I could around retail to the point where I've built an expertise in, in strategy. And so my job was going into companies and either learning everything I could learn and giving them guidance from where to spend their money and telling them, I think this is coming because this is where technology is headed or just creating a digital marketing plan for them. It really varied. Yeah. I mean, you think about being a home cook and you know, that, that launching pad, that food and wine, that competition Mm -hmm. was, did you give yourself advice out of that retail, you know, uh, background, uh, you know, on how to market and promote yourself. Right. What what did you tell yourself? Well, the whole thing about the food and wine contest was that I was on a plane, which was very typical for me. I saw the ad in the magazine and with every contest, there's rules and you have to post them and make them accessible. So I looked online to see how they were judging it. And, you know, there was a breakdown of the things that they were looking for. And I said, I'm going to win this. And I made it a job. I created a meeting on my calendar every day for an hour. And I spent that hour pulling content and creating these recipes or documenting recipes that I had been working on and really building this portfolio of all the food that I had made since I started cooking at home. Yeah. Well, I mean, what were those logistics? What, what did you pick apart? I mean, it was I traveled all the time and I never saw my friends. And so every other... Sunday, I would have people over, and I happened to have the most nerdy friends in New York that, you know, my best friend is the founder of Foursquare, so he was always traveling with a digicam, and I have, you know, friends that were founders of Instagram. Everyone was always documenting everything because it was their passion, and they were super nerds before it was cool to be a super nerd, and so... I just reached out to them and like, send me your best video or your best picture or tell me your best story, and they really supported it by contributing to the site as well and telling these stories. And so it was really more about engaging them and less about, look at me, look at me, this is what I made. Yeah, and I mean, City Great was the name of the location on Foursquare for mm-hmm. your, your, for my you know, house. For your apartment. And what was the point, though, that, that you said, well, this is viable business or this is all I'm doing, so I might as well turn this into a business? Well, I, as part of winning the contest... Food and Wine graciously sent me to the Cayman Cookout, which I don't know if you've been to it, but it is such an amazing time. And I got to spend four days with Grant Ackett and Jose Andres and David Chang and Eric Repair and every one of them and their cooks, you know, they would find out why I was there, which I was really shy about. Um, and they would say, 
you should be cooking professionally. And it kind of gave me this inflated sense of security yeah. where I was like, well, Erica Baird said that I should be cooking <laughs> professionally. So I'm going to do it. And I was taking time off to work on a book and do some sh research on where the retail market was headed. And so I'd already saved up money to take the time off for that. So I just thought, well, at the end of six months, if I don't have a job in food, I'll just go back to consulting. And so it was, what, September of 2011? Mm-hmm. You opened up City Grit for real. Mm -hmm. You know, new location. What was that location and what did you bring in? <laughs> oh, my gosh. So City Grit's first real location was in the basement of the Catholic school that closed about, I guess, 18 months prior. So it was actually the first parochial schoolhouse in New York City and was a nunnery at one point and certainly is still haunted maybe still haunted. I like to, I like to tell guests just that as a joke. Jamie Bissonette just reminded me of it the other day. <laughs> um, and I mean, it was such a like ghetto kitchen. It had an eight burner range and a convection oven and a steam table that they used to like serve the kids lunch. But even looking at the reports from the health department, like they were basically popping things out of the freezer into the oven and then serving them. So this equipment wasn't really used. It was a lot of space. It wasn't set up really, though, for executing food like we ended up executing food. But we made it work. And I think that is something that's really fun because, you know, chefs were coming from these kitchens that where they had everything in the world equipment wise and then had to make do and put out five to six courses of what they wanted to showcase with eight burners and a steam table. Yeah, it's always funny. I, I see guest chefs go into the James Beard house mm -hmm. and complain about that kitchen. Right. So why not give them something worse and right. see if they can still do better? Right. So, you know, aside from uh, the condition it was in, it, it became a hotbed for guest chefs mm -hmm. um, around the country, if not around the world. What, what was it that drew people to that parochial school, to that nunnery um, to cook with you, for you, at City Grit? I think it was a number of things, but most of all, because I, I felt like I owed the food community something because I really got to change my life overnight. You know, I quit my job and I started cooking, even though I didn't know what I was doing because of the support from Food and Wine. And it just shows the power of the food media getting behind you and someone like Dana, you know, saying this girl is, we think the best home cook in America you know, that changes the game for you. And so the mission for City Grit then and now was about bringing the spotlight to these people that were up and comers. And so we gave them a platform to be introduced to the New York dining community and to the New York food media, which the, I feel like it's the food center of the world. And we really got behind that. We marketed it. We helped them design a menu that they could execute out of that limited kitchen. And we really believed in something bigger and all these chefs were the something bigger. And I think that for them, we created an experience that isn't typical of when you, you know, at cooking at the James Beard house certainly is magical in its own right, but a different kind of support that we gave them. And then my goal from the front of the house was, you know, we're not serving the same food every day. You can't guarantee that you're going to have that chicken that you love. You or the wine list changes every night. The music changes every night the chef changes every night. So what can we guarantee the guests? And I wanted to 
make the commitment to them that they would have a great time. And we really, there's just a magic that would happen in the City Girt dining room that had to do with A, it wasn't happening again. So it was a like once in a moment lifetime event. And that we just really didn't take ourselves too seriously and had a great time. And I think that that was something that we try to capture at Birds and Bubbles, but it was so organic. And so, I mean, really, I feel like it's the City Grit magic that we see glimpses of it every now and again. Yeah, you know, we talk differently about great restaurant experiences versus that dinner party that you went to at your friend's house. that right. just resonates in, in this deeper way. And City Grit got to kind of straddle that line mm-hmm. and still does in, right. in, in that, like you said, very organic way. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about some of the well-known chefs who have also cooked at City Grits and your newest venture, Birds and Bubbles, fried chicken and champagne. You're listening to the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network.org. We'll be right back. Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at InternationalCulinaryCenter.com. Hey, and welcome back to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, today with Sarah Simmons, America's greatest home cook, as done by Food & Wine. But, you know, those friends that you had over at the original City Grit location mm-hmm. um, must have agreed, too, because obviously you got their support, but... You also got the support of, of really well-known chefs, too. I mean, was it part of your past life, having traveled around, eating at that restaurant that guys like John Currents, Paul Key came to you to cook at City Grit? I mean, I think that you know, there's a d- different story for a lo- each of those chefs. John Currents is just, he is one of the most amazing people ever born. One of the most amazing chefs ever born. I wanted him, he was on my list of top five chefs when I came up with the concept for City Grit. So the first time he cooked with us was, you know, to me, an epic moment. And it was one of the most exciting nights. It also, John Currents is too much fun sometimes. So <laughs> my kitchen staff learned very quickly that you cannot take the first six shots that John Currents is offering you or you won't make it through the evening and the food won't get out. <laughs> um, but he, if you've met him, you know, he just has this magnetic personality that and love of food and a commitment to ingredients and to the South and so it was such an honor having him in our kitchen. You know, Paul, I met him because as much as everyone thinks that I'm this huge extrovert, I just love people, but I really don't 
thrive in giant party-esque settings. Why so, do you think I do radio in a contained yes, environment? <laughs> I get it. I totally get it. And um, I met him at the James Beard Awards one year where he and I were basically just like sitting back at a table in the corner because hiding from everyone. Um, and so he was like, let's do something together. And he ended up coming and doing a seven night stint after he won top chef, but before he you know, was even announcing what he was doing with key. And it was really fun. And it was exciting to see how excited he was because to me, he was such a big deal, but yet this was such a big deal to him. And so I really loved that time we spent together and my team learned so much from him and I shared some things with him that he had never seen before. And I still finish a dish with dehydrated soy that he introduced me to. And so, yeah, it was a really great week. I mean, talk about a great space to be testing the market because you have those chefs that have already established themselves either through restaurants or TV appearances, but Claire Handelman, Mm -hmm. um, came and cooked at City Grit, and I'm really fascinated about her and her project, but Mm -hmm. what's it like to have a a chef like her cook Thai food? So, it's funny, because we do this thing every year called The Next Big Thing, where we look for chefs that are leaving well-known kitchens to go out on their own, and for their first venture, and she, we didn't know her or her food, and, you know, to be totally stereotypical when someone's like, oh, yeah, this, like, girl friend of mine named Claire Handelman makes amazing Thai food. I'm like, oh, yeah, really? This white girl makes some good Thai food? And then she did a tasting, and it blew my mind. So delicious, so flavorful, beautiful. I'd never seen Thai food like this. Very elegant. Like, she definitely looked like someone that had been in a John George kitchen. Um, And so I loved that because... A, it reminded me to not be such a judgmental asshole, but also it gave her the opportunity to get in front of investors and to you know, showcase her food because she had never really cooked her own food in New York, although she'd been cooking in New York for a long time. Yeah, I mean, that's not an opportunity that most people get right. in New York. And that that's why I think City Grid has been such a game changer for a lot of up-and-coming chefs. But even established ones that want to do something else. Yes. You know, like, again, you get to test this market with, with all eyes on you and all the right eyes. And My best compliment I ever received was when John Besh launched his last cookbook. He called me and said, City Grid is where I want to launch this book. Like, there's things that I want to do that are pushing the envelope that... The average diner may like turn their nose up at those things, and I think that your diners are cool, and you've built this amazing environment, and this is where I want to do my book launch. And he did it, and it was, I mean, that's the biggest compliment, because yeah. John Besh is, <laughs> he's just the man. I mean, did you, did you trial run Birds and Bubbles at City Grit? Yes. So every... Birds and Bubbles specifically, and then every other concept that I ever open has, I've already written the menus for four concepts and tested them and put those dishes out in front of guests and receive feedback and, and fine tune them. So I, no one, you know, really knows this because it wasn't the intention, but I got to use City Grid as my own test kitchen. So when we were ready to open Birds and Bubbles, we already knew the pickups on all the dishes and we had already tweaked them that crispy potato salad had been served 17 times. And so we really, we knew what to expect. We knew what the diners were going to respond to um, because we 
put those dishes out and actually had a chance to get feedback. What was unexpected, though, is that pairing. Even though, I mean, fried chicken and champagne seem so right together, mm-hmm. why no one else was serving it that way, I don't know. And the splitty split is one of my favorite, not only just menu descriptors, right. but dishes in, in New York, because sometimes you just want a half chicken and split of champagne. Right. And I think it's a perfect thing for one person or for two people if they want to try it. Oh, and I didn't know it was ever for two people. You can yeah. split it. Right. <laughs> and that's what, you know, there are people that come and get their own, which I think is funny. And um, we specifically designed that so we could change the splits out seasonally. And then, you know, we don't make any money on champagne on that dish because the splits are so expensive. But we at least give you the opportunity to have a low barrier to entry to try champagne because champagne's really hard to experiment with when the majority of the bottles are over $100. I know. Again, you're giving this stage for something that a lot of people know but don't really know. Just like a lot of the chef's food. They right. they, they know of it, but they don't really know what they can do or what they want to do. And you extensively traveled around champagnes looking for these small mm-hmm. growers. I mean, uh, tell me about who you found and, and why it's so important to serve those things by the glass and by the bottle here in New York. Oh, man. There's some. Mark Aberar is just. That is some perfect champagne, I believe. It's, it's beautifully done. And when you, like, see that they have, like, three small, like, hectares and then, like, you know, be a cart is like fields and fields next to them. Um, it, it really hits home to why like it's so important to support them because they're fighting an uphill battle. Literally. Um, Raphael Baresh is, uh, my champagne crush. We actually kind of busted in on his winery, um, with someone that we met at, another tasting and both Ariel Arcia, our beverage director and I just fell in love with him. His, he's just a dynamic, passionate winemaker and it's in the family. And what's so interesting is all of these small growers, it's in the family. They do it in the traditional method, but they all have one like totally modern piece of equipment that they're like, well, except for this. <laughs> um, but it's funny to see what they choose to go modern on. Yeah. Um, have, have you modernized your fried chicken recipe? No. I mean, well, I would say the only thing modern about it is that it's all pan fried and then cooled very quickly. And then we bring it up to temperature. We fry twice through the night, um, but bring it up to temperature through with a combi oven so we can pull the humidity out and keep it crisp and then you know heat it through to serve so i mean talk about translating that i know you have this amazing product with william sonoma which Mm -hmm. is a fried chicken kit and you're willing to give away that secret well i think that it's one of those things that nothing is i mean if you're gonna hold their secrets then it doesn't do that much good and i really started off in the culinary world with this desire for people to make their own food and that hasn't changed, even though I really appreciate it. If you don't, you can meet in my yeah. restaurants now. <laughs> but I think that there's so many ideas and no like recipe is really proprietary because you can't find a chef that wasn't like, oh, I ate this somewhere else and it inspired this, which is totally different, but still inspired by something else. So I think that it actually passing it along makes the f- food world more, it drives more community and... I just want everyone to make fried chicken. It's not as hard as they think. Yeah. 
you know, what I love is this spotlight that you, you, you take away from yourself and you, you give to other people and products because I know you travel to, you know, do these city spotlights. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's through Williams-Sonoma as well. Well, or- we, we do that for City Grit because we were going to these towns and finding, looking for the next, like, chefs that we wanted to bring. But then I would have this amazing caramel that, you know, this artisan food maker was making or the best taco. And I can't bring the caramel maker or the taco guy to cook at City Grit. So we were thinking, how can we drive exposure for them and kind of turn it on its head where we bring in these chefs from these cities and we write these dining guides that then we encourage the guests to go and travel to these cities. And so William Sonoma saw these guides and we ended up building the gourmet gift baskets for holiday season last year around these guides um, because they're really fun and they do the hard, heavy lifting of organizing yourself to explore the city from a food standpoint. And it supports what you know, William Sonoma is a giant company supports, which is raising a- awareness for the artisan and, and giving them exposure and helping them spread the word. So what are this year's small cities to visit? So Minneapolis, I feel like isn't even news anymore because when someone like Gavin Kaysen leaves, you know, a restaurant under Danielle and moves home to open something, then, you know, that's the sign. I think that Birmingham, Alabama has over and over and over had its small day, I'd say, in the shade, but it deserves its day in the sun because I think it's a tremendous place. Sacramento, California, which is, I feel like, the redheaded stepchild of every place in California, you know, has the, the, the farmer's market is there where all the chefs from Napa and San Francisco actually end up getting most of their food so that their access to produce is unmatched. The dining scene there is tremendous. So I think that people should be going there maybe on a day trip or two when they go visit San Francisco. Toronto, unbelievable food scene. I think Portland, Maine is the next big thing. I And I haven't even been there yet. So that's just from what I'm hearing from my food-loving friends. No, I, I, I can confirm that there are certain highlights there. Yeah. Like Central Provisions was one of the best meals I've had in the last, you know, couple of years. Yeah. Where on a whim, I just sat down on the counter. Don't you love that? It's just, it, I will never look at, not that I often look at, uh, swordfish belly the same. Mm-hmm. Just completely blew my mind. Um, talking about other cities, I know you're trying to maybe get back to your roots. Mm-hmm. Hit up the Carolinas, do some brick and mortar stuff there. Right. Yeah, so soon, maybe, I'll be opening some things. <laughs> I'm trying to be as discreet as possible, but I have a line of, or a couple of concepts that I want to open in South Carolina, which is where my parents live now, because they're not getting any younger. I miss the South. I would love to be able to split my time between New York and, and Columbia, and the growing season is tremendous there. So the access to produce, which is always important to me, is unbelievable. And I think that Columbia, maybe we can make Columbia the next big dining scene because there's not a lot of options there right now. It's getting there, but I want to definitely would love to be a part of that transformation. So in the next year, we'll probably be opening my first location there. It's so exciting because, again, you've taken the spotlight off of yourself so much and cast it on others that 
we want more of you. <laughs> You've done such a good job for everybody else and, you know, tireless work as an advocate. But, you know, you were considered the best, you know, home cook for a reason. Skill, strategy, and th- that blend really, you know, creates this forum for so many other culinary minds to, you know, interact. And, Thank you. And it's pretty amazing. Um, lastly, my wife asked me to ask about birthday cake. Why is uh, it on the menu? And why do you celebrate a birthday every day? So birthday cake is my second favorite food. I prefer just the straight up white cake with white frosting from Publix, which is a grocery store in the South. And worked really hard to recreate that without any processed ingredients. And I wanted it to be on the menu because it's my second favorite food, but mainly because Birds and Bubbles is about Southern food, but really about celebration. So we wanted to open a restaurant where you didn't have to wait for Sunday supper for fried chicken. You didn't have to wait for your birthday or anniversary to have, or some big event to have champagne. You could just pop a bottle on a Tuesday because your Uber got there on time and you didn't have to pay, you know, surge pricing. And where you could have birthday cake when it wasn't your birthday. It's really, we have this thing called Today's Toast, where at some point every night we stop the dining room and everyone gets a shot of champagne and we toast to something. And, you know, it's really a part of celebrating the everyday. And so having the birthday cake on the menu drives that point home. It's the best dinner party in a restaurant there ever was. Those are the nights when everyone is celebrating something. And then we do the toast where I see glimpses of the magic of City Grit. And I, I feel like no matter what happened in the kitchen or no matter what happened on the floor, we have succeeded. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give my regular pitch, definitely go to City Grid and Birds and Bubbles, but even more so, how do people get in contact with you to work with you? Because I think that is the biggest boon there is out of City Grid. I think they the best way is for them to email events at citygridnyc.com, and then depending on what they're looking for, it gets forwarded to the right person or to me to make that happen yeah someday i got something for you i can't wait we're gonna be collaborating but thank you so much for coming on and again if if you want a fried chicken go stop see sarah or now buy our kids at william and sonoma fried chicken for all and have that champagne on the side you've been listening to the food scene on heritage radio network.org uh big thank you to international culinary center for sponsoring of course always music by cookies the band our engineers jack and maggie and little something extra we're going to play a clip of katie Kiefer's what doesn't kill you after the show uh, all about 3d printing again i'm your host michael harlan turkel hoping to have you back here next tuesday at three cheers you know when we first printed our you know first uh uh, cookie and chocolate and so forth. It was more of a frivolous activity, as I as I said. You know, we were engaged in printing robots and doing serious engineering, and this was sort of on the side. But uh, very quickly, we realized that first of all, there's a lot of interest in this uh, technology and what it could do, but also that it has a lot. It potentially combines cooking with information technology in a new way. Professor Hod Lipson explains how 3D printing will change the way you eat on episode 150 of What Doesn't Kill You, hosted by Katie Kiefer. So one application of that is, of course, uh, printing uh, based on biometrics. So, And we, we actually open our book with this sort of a, a scene depicting a future 
day uh, in your life when you wake up and based on your biometrics from that night coming from your watch or, or whatever, uh, your, your breakfast with eggs and muffin and, and whatever is printed that has exactly the right level of calcium, sugar, uh, you know, what, whatever ingredients, nutrients you need, doesn't have the things you don't need, uh, and uh, so forth. And, and it's really um, the sky's the limit. Once you put this kind of cooking under the control of a computer that is connected to all this biometrics and the latest information, uh, there's just so many things that, that could be done that uh, it's mind-boggling to me. So theoretically, Dr. Lipson, we could be engineering our own like diet plan, say you needed to lose five pounds. Absolutely. Calibrate and, that into your machine and then say, okay, feed me that stuff? Uh, yeah, you can say factor, you know, this is what I want to do, factor that in into, into my, my, my breakfast, and it will be factored in in, in whatever way. Again, that is not just a, a, a static program. It will be based on your biometrics. Uh, so, so, so it will be customized and individualized. And uh, you could also uh, imagine that these things adapt over time. So, so people can share these recipes. Can can uh, it's not just a fixed recipe that's in a book and and uh, it's one size fits all. Want to dig deep into the future of 3D printing? Listen to episode 150 of What Doesn't Kill You, hosted by Katie Kiefer, and find archived episodes on heritageradionetwork.org and iTunes. This piece was brought to you by the International Culinary Center, culinarycenter.com. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.